Tonight's Bible reading. Tonight's Bible reading comes from Matthew 28, 1 to 20. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now now I have told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised, and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, he will, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. When Jesus came to them and said, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Amen. Thank you so much for that, Elena. Well, welcome again, and um, thank you again for being here and for those of you online. It is certainly an interesting service with um, a number of people not being able to make the service this evening and a number of roles having to be filled at very short notice, but uh, it's good that we can continue to, this, to do this. So please uh, pray for our church family. Obviously, there's a number of people who are not well, and um, it's evident in the number that are missing tonight also, so uh, please keep them in your prayers. I think um, this evening... We'll just make it a bit more laid back. I feel like we should all just all gather and do more a Bible study type thing. It doesn't seem right to be up here preaching, but uh, I'll do it anyway, especially for the benefit of those who are online with us as well. A couple of thousand years ago, there was this great teacher. He had disciples and he had followers, and many were questioning who he was. Some even thought he could have been the Messiah. And Matthew 11 says, There was no one born of women who was greater than this man. He preached God's word obediently, uncompromisingly, but ended up being imprisoned, and ultimately he was killed. 
His disciples came and gathered his body. They took it and they buried it. And the last we hear of his disciples is in Matthew 14, 12. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. This was John the Baptist who was killed. And his disciples came boldly to the prison where John had been held and beaten. And they took his body. They honoured him, they mourned him, and reverently buried him in a grave of an unknown location. And having done everything that they could do for John, there was nothing left to actually keep them together. The one reason they were united was gone. And as is often the case when a great leader dies, the followers return to their former roles or simply move on to other things. And as we know, around the same time, there was another group. They, just like John, uh, just like John's disciples, sorry, had seen their leader killed. He was buried, and it isn't long before this group also begins to fragment. If they had any hope at all, why was it that only the women were the ones who went to his tomb in the morning? Why are we told in John, the two of them were already walking on the road to Emmaus, away from Jerusalem? When John was killed, it heralded the end of his time and also that of his followers. They simply melted away and we hear nothing more about them. And this would have been the fate shared for the followers of Christ except for one event which the women who had been left to tend to Jesus announced. He is risen. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that we can come into this place again this evening. I thank you for those who are gathered at home. And Lord, my prayer is a prayer I often pray. Just reveal the truth of your word to us. Let us hear your voice in what is shared this evening and let us respond to that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe most of us here, most of us online would know the story of Jesus' resurrection. We'd know how it went. So tonight, I just want to look at this in a more practical way. I want to explore what the resurrection means for the disciples, for the church and for us as individuals. And I want each of these points to actually indicate stuff that each of those should actually do. And the first one is the resurrection calls for a choice. Think about everything that occurred in the account that was read out to us tonight. Matthew tells us that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary was there. That other Mary was the mother of James and Joseph. And they went to the tomb. Now, in the other gospel accounts, they actually let us know that there were three other women as well. So there's five women in total that actually went to the tomb. And as these women approached the tomb of Jesus, they had no expectation at all that Jesus would be anything but dead. They were looking to finish the burial process. And even questioning along the way, who or how they were actually going to move the stone in order for them to be able to complete that task. And as they travelled towards the tomb, there was another earthquake. It occurred as an angel descended, an angel of the Lord descended and removed the stone. And the translation is a little bit lacking here and also in the NIV where it says he rolled back the stone. That isn't actually what happened in the original translation. And these stones, they're about that high, they're about that wide, they weigh a ton or so. And so what this angel actually did, he removed the stone altogether and sat upon it. 
And I've actually been to the garden tomb. I've been also to the other site, they believe. And the stone in the garden tomb, when they found it, was actually removed from the grave. It was about from here to Judy, away from where the grave was, and they've left it sitting there on the site. So this angel supposedly came and removed this stone and sat on it. It's interesting that the angel doesn't say anything to the guards that are there at the time. Pastor Darrell this morning says that uh, he believes the angel came and sat on this stone and just glared at them. He had this appearance of lightning. His clothing was white as snow. Clothing white in those days was unseen. They just didn't have it. They weren't able to bleach their clothes like we can today. And so just that would have been enough. But this is an angel that reflected the splendor and glory of God. So he had that appearance of lightning. And this was beyond what the guards were able to handle, especially when the angel didn't speak or say anything. And they trembled. And they became as dead men, or if you like, they fainted. And when the women arrive on the scene, they actually don't say anything about the guards. So we assume that the guards had moved on. And we can only assume that they actually crawled off into the bushes or something because they know what happened from this time forward. And these women arrived. We don't know how they reacted to the angels, to the angel, sorry. But the angel says to them, do not be afraid. Hello, Houston. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. The angel has been sent to bring a message to these women. They have nothing to fear from him. And he comes bearing good news for them, to give them good news. And he says, he's not here. He is risen. As he said, as Jesus said, come see the place where he lay. Now what the angel has said is staggering. If you can just put yourself in the position of those women, this is beyond belief. He reminds them that Jesus told them exactly that though, that he was going to rise from the dead. they couldn't believe it they'd seen Jesus beaten beyond recognition they'd seen him nailed to the cross they'd seen him cry out to his heavenly father they'd seen him breathe his last they saw him brought to this tomb wrapped in burial clothes and laid to rest there But this angel is calling them to believe. He reminds them that this is what Jesus told them, that he would rise from the dead. He encourages them to come in and look. And why they're doing that is come and see that it is just as we said it would be. Come and see it's exactly as Jesus said it would be. He wanted them to see where Jesus lay. And he wanted wanted them to confirm everything that the angel had told them, that it was true. Then they were commissioned. Thank you. They were commissioned to go and tell the disciples that Jesus has indeed risen and that he's going to go before them to Galilee. Now remember the soldiers... What have they been doing? And as I said, I believe, thanks Scott, I believe that they've witnessed all of this from their hiding place. And when the two women leave to tell the disciples about Jesus being raised from the dead, they go to report what they have seen. 
and they go to the chief priests and they declare everything that they've observed. I believe that they told the chief priests about the earthquake, they told the chief priests about this angel, about the women coming. In fact, I think they told them everything that they could think of to try and save their own necks. They were there to protect the body of Christ and make sure it didn't disappear and was taken. And yet somehow, that's exactly what happened. What's amazing for me is, it appears that for everything they'd witnessed, miraculous though it was, they preferred to take money instead of telling others about what they'd seen. And they were willing to deny everything that they saw and tell people that the disciples stole Jesus' body. And likewise, the chief priests choose to hold fast to their position that Jesus was a blasphemer and a heretic rather than responding favourably to the account they had just heard, an account that confirms Jesus is the promised Messiah. But the women who were told by the angel to go quickly do exactly that. Note that they have fear. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear. But it's not a lot of fear. They have fear, but they have great joy. And that's worth noting. Think about the situation again that they find themselves in. The empty tomb, the appearance of the angel, the urgency of the angel's message, the need to tell the disciples, what about the guards? What are they doing? What about the religious leaders? Does any of this make any sense? What's going to happen into the future? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for the disciples? What does this mean for Jesus? We got no idea. Would it be natural to have a little bit of fear in that situation? Would it be natural to feel a little bit anxious? I think I would. I'm not sure I'd be able to put one foot in front of the other. I'd just be so caught up in how bizarre this whole situation is. You'd possibly want to pinch yourself a few times just to see if you weren't actually dreaming all this. But they're just caught in this situation where there would naturally be some fear. So they feared a little, but they had this great joy. What was the great joy about? Something is beginning to stir within them. That hope of Jesus being truly the promised Messiah is being rekindled within their hearts and their minds. It was snuffed out, but suddenly it's enlivened again. They thought he was gone, but suddenly he's back. Could this be real? Could he be the one? Regardless, Jesus is alive. They've seen him. They believe. But they aren't going to keep this to themselves. The resurrection demands the sharing of his message. The angel had told the women to go and tell the disciples that Jesus had risen. And then Jesus meets them as they're on their way. And he likewise commissions them, the women, as the first messengers of the good news that Jesus has risen. And Jesus says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. I don't think we really appreciate just how incredible this commission is that Jesus has given these women. You have heard it said that women were not considered trustworthy in that day. In fact, there were some places they couldn't appear as witnesses. It didn't matter how many of them witnessed it. Women were not trustworthy to appear as witnesses. And yet Jesus selects women as the first to encounter him, to witness 
his resurrection. And so, because these women are the first witnesses to the resurrected Christ, it suggests that they are regarded as equally important to men. They are to be restored to be co-workers with men in the community of faith as they were originally in Genesis 1. They were created in the image of God, just like men were created in the image of God. We were created male and female in God's image. There's no differentiation there. This first message was very specific. The women were told to tell the disciples to go to Galilee. And when they go to Galilee, when the disciples are there, there's another message which is given for every believer. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Let's think about these women again. When they discover the fact of the risen Lord, their first duty is to actually go and tell others. The commission given to all believers and given to the other disciples is the same. When we discover the wonderful saving grace we have in Jesus, then we are urged and commanded to go and tell others. It is our task, our role, and Jesus commanded it to us to tell others about him. We are to be disciples who make disciples. He will be with us. He will encourage us and he calls us to be a people unto himself. When we are obedient to him, we find that the resurrection brings unity. When I spoke briefly about John and his disciples, the response with John's death was quite normal. When that leader dies, it is natural for the followers to disband. They may have stayed together for a short period of time, but over time they would have slowly moved on and dispersed. And when we consider what happened to Jesus' disciples at his death, it would have been natural for them to disband too. And there were some signs of that. It's interesting when you think about the guys on the road to Emmaus. This is what they said. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. And they're walking along talking about everything that happened and Jesus joins them and for some reason they don't recognize Jesus. And they talk about how Jesus' body was missing. And the hope was that this Jesus was the Messiah, but his death seems to put paid to that. And if this was the case only a couple of days after Jesus' death, how much more would have their doubt grown as that time went on? They would have fallen further and further away. But this falling away was stopped. There was a sudden change. The death that should have ended it all provided triumph and victory for the religious leaders. Oh, sorry, the, the death that the religious leaders of the day thought provided them triumph and victory ends up being the foundation of this new faith. And not just a faith, but for a people, a people who would ultimately be called the church. The shadow of death that fell on Jesus' life is no longer something that is mourned. It becomes the very centerpiece of this newfound faith. The cruel cross despised by so many becomes the very altar on which they were one. In this bizarre paradox, that which should have signaled the end of the followers of Jesus Christ becomes the very strength of their faith. But the cross alone could not do that. It was the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. 
but some doubted. Is this comforting for you? It's comforting for me. I, I, I think it's a great verse. Here are these disciples standing there worshipping Jesus just before he ascends into glory. And they're worshipping him, yet some doubted. And it's comforting to me because there are times I doubt too. But these guys are standing there looking upon Jesus, transfixed, amazed. How can this possibly be? This guy was dead and yet he's standing before us. Is this even possible? Dead people do not come back to life. How can this be? And even looking upon Jesus, they doubted. And for me, it tells me that it's okay when I doubt, but I've got to take my doubts to the Lord. I've got to be willing to doubt my doubts rather than doubting Jesus and the finished work that he performed on the cross and the fact that he rose from the dead. And if nothing else, this again points to the accuracy and honesty of the biblical account. If we wanted to champion the men of faith, the disciples of that day, we wouldn't have something like this in there if we'd fabricated the story. I want to emphasise, though, the disciples could have fallen away from Jesus after his death. They could have gone their separate ways. That's what has happened for the followers of every other great figure in history. But it didn't happen here. In fact, these guys were transformed. I can't help but mention Peter. He was afraid of mentioning he even knew Jesus. When Jesus was arrested, 50 days later, he stands in the same city where Jesus was arrested, beaten, flogged and crucified. And he boldly proclaims that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the promised Messiah. I love the way Andy Stanley summarises the message that Peter proclaimed. Jesus is the Son of God. You killed him. You better say you're sorry. That really sums it up as far as I'm concerned. The facts of the matter is, 5,000 were added to the church that day. Peter suddenly becomes this bold man who proclaims the truth of the gospel, unafraid of what could happen to him. Something transformed his life. I think about all of the disciples that were there at the time. As far as we know, all of them, bar one, died painful deaths, refusing to stop talking about Jesus, refusing to say he was not the Messiah. They were united in their message and they were united in building the church as Jesus told them to make disciples. Think about James and Jude, the two books we have in the Bible. They were written by Jesus' brothers. And these two didn't believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. They didn't believe he was this Messiah up to his point of death. So what happened between his point of death and the death that they suffered, James particularly, declaring Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And the only thing that fits, the only thing that makes sense is the fact that they saw the risen Lord. James, so committed to his brother, his Lord and Saviour, that he had the nickname of Camel Knees because the amount he prayed and he had these huge calluses on his knees from kneeling on the cobblestones. He became the leader of the church, the Christian church in Jerusalem and he was thrown from the temple into the courtyard for refusing to say Jesus was not the Son of God and he died there. Jesus united the disciples it was he alone who held them together and we are united with him. 
1 Corinthians 1.10 calls for us to not allow divisions amongst us that we may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Galatians 3.28 tells us that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or free, female, all are one in Christ. John 13.35 tells us that the world will know that we are Christ's disciples if we love one another. Philippians 2.2 is the call for us to make Paul's joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and mind. And we are called brothers and sisters of the Most High God. We are family. It was interesting, I'm not sure if you noticed when the passage was read, but in Matthew 28.10, Jesus moves from calling his disciples disciples to calling them brothers. Tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. He calls them brothers. We are family. We are joint heirs with the Son. It's so incredible to be a part of the church of our Lord and Saviour. What's this mean for us? Let's go back to the women who arrived at the tomb. And they received that message from the angels. And they left with a little fear, but great joy. You may have heard this message a thousand times. But tonight, maybe it seems a little bit different. Suddenly, it seems like it's meant just for you. There's a little fear. But trust me, there can be great joy. If that's you, don't, don't leave tonight without talking to someone. I'd love to pray for you. I'd love to encourage you to know Jesus. Think about the guards. They witnessed everything that happened, the miraculous signs, the wonders, the glory of the Lord reflected in the angel, and they forfeited what could have been theirs for a bit of money. Why don't we follow Jesus? Don't do that to yourself. The greatest experience you can ever possibly have on this earth is within grasp. And give me or a Christian friend the opportunity to introduce you to Jesus. He loves you. He accepts you as you are. He wants you. Remember, there was a robber on the cross beside Jesus. He'd never done anything good with his life at all. But the very day he died, he was in paradise with the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus accepted him, he will accept you. For those of you who believe, those of you who have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to think about when you first encountered Jesus. For me, that time when my life was transformed, it was pretty black and white. I was confronted with the truth and I had to declare that I was for God, I was against him. For me, it was a no-brainer. There was no choice. I chose to follow him. It was nothing to do with me. It was nothing to do with how good I was or anything else. It was his call on my life. And I simply said yes. Will you, will you just pause now with me? Will you think about that first commitment? Will you just bow your heads and dwell upon that? Don't worry about who's around you. Don't worry about me up the front. Just think about that first commitment that you made to Jesus. Think about 
all that he has done for you. We, we come to this time of year and we should reflect on the cross. We should reflect on everything he suffered. He suffered for you. He took your sin upon himself. He died so you could live. He loves you. He forgives you. He sees you. And he hears you. Do you remember that first time? That great joy when you experienced his wonderful saving grace. Have you continued in that grace, that love, that glory, that presence, submitting yourself fully to him? Or have you drifted a little bit? Is he calling you tonight? to return to him? Is he calling you to start afresh? And I want you to think about that great joy that you experienced again. I want you to think about how that made you feel, the freedom, the freedom it gave me and just the overwhelming joy that I would have a relationship with the creator of this universe and I was going to stand in his presence. I will stand in his presence in glory one day. And you remember that euphoric feeling. You remember that occasion when you first made that commitment. Is that worth telling about to others? Have you been holding back from doing that? He calls you and he calls us to tell others about him. The incredibly good news that he is not dead, he is alive. He rose from the grave. And the same power that raised him to new, raised him to new life is the same power that raises you to new life in him. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will strengthen you. He will empower you. He'll give you all you need in order to be exactly what he wants you to be for him and his glory. Will you submit to him? Will you ask for his forgiveness for not being and not submitting to him? And will you tell him that you live for him every day from this day forward? You can do that quietly now. Just pray to him quietly. Ask him for his forgiveness. People at home can do this too. Let me just pray. Father God, I thank you so much that we can gather in this place at this time. I thank you, Lord, for the power of your word. I thank you, Father, for how this word spoke to me first and foremost. And I thank you, Lord, 
that you challenge us to a life with you. Lord, I ask for your forgiveness for the times when I haven't done all you've called me to, when I haven't followed you as I should, when I haven't obeyed your call upon my life. And I ask, Lord, that from this day forward you'll take me and use me for your glory and purpose. And I pray that for each one of us, Lord, that we'll get serious about our life and our walk with you and that our desire will be to honour and glorify your name in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus Christ.
have a seat. We're going to move into a time of communion, so if you'd like to start fighting with that top wrapper, that is fine. Some of them can get a bit sticky. I'm reading from Luke chapter 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the disciples with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is only a few days ago, on the night before Good Friday. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had blessed it and given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as has been determined, but woe to that man to whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it would be who would do this. Jesus made this something for us to do in remembering him until he returns. The bread represents his broken body upon the cross. Sacrifice for us. Let me just pray for the bread. Jesus, I want to thank you that you're willing to endure so much for me, for each and every one of us. I thank you, Lord, that even though you knew the extent of the suffering you would face, you saw obeying your Father and redeeming us of more value than saving yourself. Thank you for the sacrifice you made. In Jesus' name, let's eat together. cup represents the new covenant in Jesus' blood, blood that was poured out freely by him. Jesus willingly laid down his life. No one took his life from him. He decided when, he decided how. And his blood atones for us. Let me just pray for this cup. Jesus, I want to thank you again that you went to the cross. I thank you that you allowed your blood to be poured out so freely. I thank you, Lord, that your blood atones for my sin, for all of our sins, Lord, for the sins of the whole world. I thank you it was enough. And Lord, I pray I will never take that for granted, that none of us will ever take that for granted. Thank you for your sacrifice for us.
Jesus' name. Let's drink together. Father, I want to thank you again that we could come into this place this evening. I thank you for your presence with us. I thank you for Holy Spirit who ministers to us. I thank you for the supper we've just celebrated, Lord, remembering the great sacrifice that you made for us. And I don't fully understand all of that, Lord. I don't understand a love so great. But it brings me great joy to know I have a relationship with you as a result. So, Father, leading into this week, I pray that you'll be with me. I pray that your word will be alive to me. I pray that will be true for every person here, every person online, Lord, that they would just be enlivened, empowered by you each and every day. They'll have a desire to come into your presence. They'll know your love. They'll know your grace. They'll know your glory poured out upon them, Lord. And, Father... Each and every one of us will make ourselves available to you each and every day for your glory and purposes. And we will ask for your divine appointments and be looking for them and step into them, Lord, and serve you any way that we can. Not because we have to, but because we want to, because of the great sacrifice that you've made for us. May you bless us and keep us, Lord. May your face shine upon us. May you give us peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, one and all.